0: And verse 11. Hear the word of God. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and for the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities they brought them before the magistrate and said these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrate's ordered them to be stripped and beaten after they had been severely flogged they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully On receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked men, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and the whole family was filled with joy because they had come to believe in God. When it was daylight, the magistrates set their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. And they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left.
1: Now this evening we look at hope for your house, God's seal for children of the covenant. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that before the foundation of the world, you set your love on us and on our houses. We come and commit them into your hands and ask that you will do that work of grace in us and in our children and our children's children, even to a thousand generations, that will give glory to Jesus who loved the little children. but We ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, there is no question that the seal of the covenant, that is circumcision, was to be applied to the children of believers under the old covenant. No one can dispute that fact because it's so clearly spelled out in the word of God. At eight days of age, the child was to be brought and circumcised to receive the sign and seal that they were a part of the covenant community. For 2,000 years, that's a quite a good period of time to set up a habit and pattern of things. For 2,000 years, this practice was established in Israel. Now, what did circumcision mean for the children of the old covenant? What was its significance to them? Why? it meant it exactly the same thing that circumcision meant to adults. The meaning of the seal doesn't change because of the person to whom it is applied. Whether infants or adults, when they were circumcised, it sealed them into membership of the externally constituted body of, belief, of believers. That is, When an adult or when a child was circumcised, they were sealed as a part of the covenant community of God's people. Now, if that person, whether adult or whether infant, was an elect person, it sealed them also in the possession of the internal blessings of the covenant. It sealed the confidence that they could have that they were to be born again of the Spirit of God and their hearts were to be cleansed by the Holy Spirit working in them. Whether or not they were believers at the time of the application of the seal, even adults, you know, sometimes might have been circumcised before they had been born again of the Spirit of God, if they were the elect people of God, that seal bound them in the possession of those blessings that are of the heart alone. Now, in this regard, it should be remembered that the Old Covenant people practiced believer's circumcision. You've heard of believer's baptism. It's a phrase that's constantly used. Well, the Old Testament people practiced believer's circumcision. Now, really, you should use the word confessor's circumcision or confessor's baptism, for as a matter of fact, we can't really know whether the person who comes and confesses Christ is a believer or not and, quote, mistakes, unquote, are made by the church today as well as in the old covenant times in that some people who confess Christ are baptized as adults even though they may not be born again of the Spirit. So what you actually do is practice confessor's baptism or confessor's circumcision. Now, one of the interesting things to notice, is how much zeal the old covenant people had to be sure that all of those in the covenant community were true believers. As a matter of fact, they had much greater zeal in that regard than the churches of today normally do, those who say they believe in believer's baptism. They say they want only those who confess Christ to be a part of their church, only those that are born again to be a part of their church. And yet, you can see that in the old covenant, there was often a much greater zeal in that regard for the purity of the people of God, for the exclusion of those who did not truly believe than there is often in a new covenant circumstance. If a person, for instance, who was circumcised, committed idolatry and worshiped an idol, he was put to death. They would not tolerate someone in their midst who was an idolater. If a person committed murder or adultery, he was put to death. They couldn't have someone in their midst that confessed that they were true believers and yet walked as though they were not true believers. They had a tremendous zeal. Laxity, if you wanna talk about laxity, about receiving people into the fellowship of the covenant, it's found much more in churches today than it was among the old covenant people. They practiced confessor's circumcision in the best sense of the word. And yet, with all that zeal for the unity and the purity of the people of God, they also at the same time practiced infant circumcision. They had no qualms about bringing the infants of believers into the full fellowship of the community of the people of God, even though they had this zeal to be sure that only those that truly belonged to God were a part of their fellowship. How could they do that? How could they so easily allow infants entrance into the covenant community? Well... They could so easily do that because God told them to do that. God said at eight days of age, the child is to be circumcised. They did that because they understood that their children were in the covenant. Not necessarily saved, but they were in the covenant. They understood also that this circumcision was a means of blessing for their children. It was a means of binding them into the fellowship of believers and thereby receiving the many blessings associated with the covenant. They did it because they were thereby taking an act of faith in claiming God's intent to restore the family. They believed that God wanted to bring the family back together as a saved unit. And so, out of faith in those promises of God, they circumcised the children. They had a guard there. The guard was that the, that the parents of those children had to have a convincing confession of faith at the time of the circumcision of the child. It had to be that the parents had faith. It wasn't that the circumcision was without faith, for the parent had to manifest not only once for all faith, but a walking in faith if that child was to be brought into the covenant community of God. Now, the essence by which the old covenant people were saved is the same as the way by which the new covenant people are saved. The covenant is exactly the same in its essence. You are in the Abrahamic covenant. If you are of Christ... You are Abraham's seed, says the Apostle Paul, and heirs of the covenant promises that were made to Abraham. The covenant that with which you function in relationship to God is not in its essence any different than the covenant with which the old covenant people functioned in relation to God. Now you can see that clearly spelled out in a passage like Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Look at Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Here you have the apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit binding the old covenant seal and the new covenant seal in the closest possible relationship. Paul says in Colossians 2 and 11 and 12, "In him, that is in Jesus Christ, you were also circumcised." Did you know there was such a thing as Christian circumcision? That's right, new covenant circumcision the fulfillment of that which the old covenant represented by circumcision is found in God's work in the new covenant. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. There it is, circumcision, baptism. Just as Passover and Lord's Supper are related to one another, you know, the Lord took the remnants of the Passover meal and thereby established the Lord's Supper. So baptism corresponds to circumcision. Just as the old covenant people received the seal of circumcision and the cutting away of the foreskin, so the new covenant people receive the seal of baptism, which binds them in the cleansing work of God. Now in this context, there is hope for your house. Hope for your house. It is sure, if anything is sure, that the home is being assaulted by our modern society more than anything in the world. But there is hope for your house, for all of your house. And that hope is in the context of God's covenant promises for you and your children and your children's children, even to a thousand generations. Now, in this context, let us look at the actual practice of the application of the new covenant seal of baptism. Often it's said, oh, well, if you could just show me one case of infant baptism in the New Testament, then I would believe. Well, how about five or six? Well, I can't quite come across with that. But let's look and see what actually is the case with respect to new covenant application of the seal. And from that context, I think you can receive all kinds of encouragement and hope for your house. Let's look at these instances, and you will see emphasis on the continuity with the Old Covenant and also on the newness, the continuity with the old and the newness of the new. There are ten occasions, of recorded baptisms in the New Testament. Ten occasions of recorded baptisms. Let's look at them briefly and see what kind of picture we get. Look, first of all, at that first occasion of New Covenant baptism, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. This is the day of Pentecost. The question is asked, what shall we do? And the answer is given, Peter replied in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, there is the little phrase, the promise is for you and your children. And what did that mean for the hearers on the day of Pentecost, the promises to you and your children? Transport yourself back into New Covenant days. And let's get a little realistic here, shall we? We, we won't change clothes and put on one of those drape, hats wrapped around and with the thing in the back to keep the, sha- the sha- your neck shaded and a little thing like this wrapped all around you, but let's just be a little realistic and ask the question, if you had gone to church on the day of Pentecost, what kind of nursery facilities did they have? We have some very nice ones here at Wallace. What did they have there? They didn't have any nursery facilities. They didn't have any at all. The little Bambino was being bounced on the arm. All during that worship service, as long as Peter preached, the children were there. That was a pattern of the old covenant. It is there particularly in the days of Moses where it strongly emphasized that the children were there as a part of the covenant community when they came together and worshipped. They didn't know anything about nursery facilities around the temple of Jerusalem. At least archaeology hasn't uncovered any rattlers or, or cribs or anything like that in the, in the temple area of Jerusalem the New Covenant times or the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of nursery facilities? None. Now, those people for 2,000 years had had it drilled in their heads that the covenant promises were for them and their children. Were your children in the covenant? Of course they're in the covenant. They're heirs of the promises, just as our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers and our great-great-grandfathers all the way back were heirs of the covenant. Even through the 12 tribes of Jacob, they were all heirs of the covenant. Now what is Peter saying? Okay, your children are in the covenant now, but as you come into the new covenant, please check your children at the door, along with their chewing gum and everything else, check your children at the door, because they're not gonna be in the covenant anymore. No, that's not the way those people would hear those words. The promise is to you and to your children. What did it mean? What kind of bells did it set off in their mind? The most natural thing, that their children were in the covenant just as much as they had been in the past. Now, you can't prove that the infants were baptized in that context, but there's an awfully large presumption that that is the case. Now, let's go to the second instance of New covenant baptism. Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Here's the baptism of the Samaritan converts. Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and Women. Simon, the sorcerer, himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, what's new about the new covenant here? What's interesting? Isn't it interesting? I've had at least two or three of you ask me after talking about circumcision in the old covenant what about the women? What was going on with the women in the old covenant situation and circumstance? If only the men were circumcised, does that mean the women were excluded from the covenant and the covenant seal? What about the women? Well, here you are in the new covenant and it becomes very clear. God's word makes the point. Men and women were baptized. Now, were the men and the women baptized on the day of Pentecost? Probably so. But as one of my professors in, in seminary once said when I asked a question that was running a little bit ahead of the professor and his point, he said, Master Robertson, you can't say everything at once. And that is the case. Even God's word can't say everything and make every point at once. But as soon as possible, after getting past the point of Pentecost and that glorious day, the point is made. The women also receive the seal of the new covenant. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean the women were not in the covenant in the, in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. It means that in that old covenant context, the circumcision of the husband or the father was the framework in which the women were included in the covenant circumstance. Why then should women be included so specifically in the new covenant? Does that mean that the family context no longer works in the covenant circumstance? No, it doesn't do that, but it perhaps indicates that we have gone a long step closer toward the consummation of things. You know, we who are in a marriage relationship really tend to glorify that relationship. And it is a glorious relationship, especially on Mother's Day. Who's going to say anything against the wonders of the marriage relationship? Not I, indeed. But it is the truth of the Word of God that marriage is not the ultimate state of things. As a matter of fact, the day is coming in which men will neither marry nor give in marriage. And the most blessed condition will not be a marriage circumstance, but in which each one of us are in one great family of God, knit together in the perfections of unity with ourselves as the bride and Christ himself as the bridegroom. Now, the new covenant has already begun. It's not fully realized in all its significances, but the fact that women now in and of themselves are brought by baptism as a sign of the covenant indicates that we're much closer now to that consummate stage than they were in the old covenant days. It isn't that the great blessings of the family and of the redemption of the family have come to their terminative end under the new covenant. It's not that God is not continuing to bless now and redeeming families, husbands, wives, and children, but it is that God is also recognizing and giving us the lesson that we move closer to the consummation than we were earlier. So that seems to be the significance of the fact that men and women are found in the covenant in Acts chapter 8. Now, the third instance of baptism in the New Testament is Acts chapter 8, verses 37 and 38. This is the case of the Ethiopian eunuch. Mark these verses, the third instance of baptism in the New Covenant, Acts 8, 37 and 38. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, I can't resist making just a little note about the mode of baptism. You notice that it says they went into the water. Sounds like immersion, doesn't it? But notice carefully what the word of god says it says they went into the water and they came out of the water unless the preachers are ready to go under water each time they baptize one another or baptize others then they're not going to quite be following the pattern or finding the pattern of immersion in this particular passage they went into the water they came out of the water they went into the water he baptized him They came out of the water. Now, they're in a desert area. It's not very likely that there was enough water for two of them to get immersed at that particular point. They went in ankle deep. Philip baptized him, and they came up out of the water. But now we have the question of the single man. Can the single man be a full participant in the covenant? One who is not a descendant of Abraham, can a single man be in the covenant? Why, of course he can. He can be a full participant in the covenant blessings of God. So, the covenant family is open to singles as well as couples. You swinging singles in the Washington area, be swinging in the covenant, not just out of the covenant. Now the fourth instance of baptism in the New Covenant is Acts chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. Here is the case of Saul. And now the question is, can a hated enemy of God's people be brought all the way back around to be a part of the blessings of the covenant? Acts 9, verses 17 and 18, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, He has sent me that you may be filled again, may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Yes, the chief of sinners can enter into the full fellowship of the family of God. Now we've got another bachelor here but here it's the chief of sinners as a bachelor. The fifth instance is Cornelius, chapter 10 of Acts. Look first at verses one and two and then at the actual case of baptism. Notice here that we have a household situation. Acts 10, verses one and two. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So notice, he and all his house are involved. He and all his house. Now in verses 44 through 48, you have the actual baptism, and it says all of those who heard were baptized. Now you have a Gentile household. It doesn't specifically say at the point of baptism that all his house was baptized, but the implication is strongly there. With rambunctious teenagers of a Gentile background, we have the inclusion of the whole house into the people of God. The sixth instance is the case of Lydia, chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. Lydia, chapter 16 of Acts, verses 13 and 15. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her house were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And notice at the end of the chapter, verse 40, and I hadn't noticed this until the scripture reading this evening, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house. Now here you have a little different situation a woman, but now apparently a woman who is the head of a house. It's not Lydia's husband's house. It's Lydia's house. There is no mention anywhere of her husband. But notice also that the scripture says she believes she and her house are baptized. The Lord opened her heart She believes her house is baptized. Not one word said about the state of the children. Did she have an infant child? We don't know. But we do know that whatever children she had were baptized. Did her children believe? We don't know. But we know that she believed and as the head of her house, All of her house was baptized. What a great picture we have in the case of Lydia. The seventh instance is the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verses 29 through 34. And this section was read this evening in scripture, but notice from verse 31 and following the literal translation of these verses. Verse 31, What shall I do to be saved? You, singular believe. And you, singular, will be saved. You, singular, and your house. Sounds awfully a lot like the case of Noah in, in Genesis chapter 7, doesn't it? Noah believed in the Lord, and all his house was to go into the ark and be saved. Verse 32 Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And actually the emphasis is a little bit reversed here. The order of the words is, Then to him they spoke the word of the Lord with all his house. Did the wife of the Philippian jailer have a little baby that she was bobbing up and down at that point? Or did the Philippian jailer even reach over to relieve his wife for a moment or two while the preacher was preaching and droning on and on and on? Well, we don't know. What the scripture says is, they spoke, the word of the, to, they spoke to him the word of the Lord with, that's the literal translation. Your translation says, and all his house, but literally it's with all his house. Now, he and all his house were baptized, it says in verse 33. And now verse 34. Now, the NIV is my favorite translation in many ways, but here, this verse, I'm afraid, is not accurately translated. I've talked to some of those who were involved in the actual rendering of these verses, and they cannot, could not, to me, explain why it was rendered the way it was. They could not explain it. Now, let me give you what is the literal translation, noticing the singulars and the plurals here in verse 34. It says literally, he rejoiced. It doesn't say they rejoiced. It's a he rejoiced. And the next word is an adverb. And it says literally, whole Now, how did they get they rejoiced? Well, they took that adverb and treated it as the subject of the verb. But you know an adverb doesn't function as a subject of a verb. It says, literally, he rejoiced whole houseedly. Did he have a little baby that he threw up in the air and said, oh, this is great. The Lord has brought salvation to my house. Well, we don't know. But what the scripture says is, he rejoiced whole houseedly. And then the next phrase is not because they had believed, it is a singular noun, and refers to the he of he rejoiced. He rejoiced whole he having believed. And hear what the, the translators have done. They have taken a participle and said that it is modifying an adverb. But you know par- participles don't modify adverbs. What the text literally says is he rejoiced whole housedly he having believed. It's the covenant. It's in the word of God. It's repeated over and over and over again. Now the next instance of baptism is Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Acts 18, verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire house believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptism, baptized. Here it is, believers' baptism, just like believers' circumcision. Now we know they're believers here because the Word of God tells us. But as a matter of fact, they were baptizing on the basis of confession. Here again, you have a case, of, in Crispus' case, of a whole house of teenagers or older children. The Word of God is preached to them. They hear the Word of God, they believe it, and they're all baptized. And that's not excluded from our church either. When a whole house believes, a whole house is baptized. The ninth instance is Acts chapter 19, verses four through seven. This is the men of Ephesus. Now it's interesting to notice that these are all men. Notice also that the Spirit comes upon them in the speaking of tongues and prophesying. But notice in particular verse seven. There were about 12 men in all heard that word 12 before that number 12 now we don't want to make too much of numbers in the bible but most likely what you have here is god's intent to have a rehearsal as it were or a repetition of the principles of pentecost but now in way out in the gentile world to show that there is no distinction between jews and gentiles here in ephesus Twelve men received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's like a new apostolic band established. So there's no reference to household baptisms. Men are emphasized. Were women excluded? We assume not. Were children excluded? We assume not if they were the children of believers. But the point here is to emphasize 12 men baptized. And the 10th instance is Corinthian baptism is found in 1 Corinthians 14 chapter one, verses 14 through 16, where you have Paul remembering, I baptized this person and that person, and I also, he says, baptize the household of Stephanus. The household of Stephanus. Now those are the 10 occasions of baptism in the New Testament. What have you got? Well, what you have is a marvelous picture A marvelous picture of the diversity of the inclusion of people under the new covenant circumstance. Do you think it was just incidental that of all the hundreds of baptism occasions that occurred, that these ten are incorporated and included in the word of God? You have a large crowd of Jewish people. You have women specifically mentioned. You have Saul and an Ethiopian eunuch representing the individual man. You have a woman as the head of a house. You have a whole family of heathen believers. You have 12 men representing a a recurrence of the occasion of Pentecost. Just about every imaginable case of baptism is there in these 10 instances. But one of the main messages, one of the main messages is hope for your house. Hope for your house. For if the covenant seal is applied to the children of believers, then there is hope for your house. Of these 10 instances, six of the 10, it's a pretty good percentage. Six out of 10, that's even for my mathematical incapacities, I think that's 60%. That's a pretty high percentage. Uh, including the day of Pentecost and children, and, other, and the, all the other cases, there are five out of the ten that specifically mention household baptisms. Now let's play a little bit more with the, with the figures here and recognize that we've got two people that couldn't possibly have had a household anyway, the Ethiopian eunuch and Paul the bachelor, so you've got really six out of eight of possible cases in the New Covenant were household baptisms. And if you want to go a little bit further and subtract one more because of this imagery of the 12 and the repetition, you've got six out of seven cases in which the instances are household baptisms. What's the pattern? What's the message? The covenant is for you and your house, And because the covenant is for you and your house, then your children should be included in the reception of the covenant seal just as much as believers themselves. God is concerned to redeem families. Beyond this law of probabilities, what, over 80% if you want to get technical about it, is the explicit practice of 2,000 years prior to this time of the same covenant of redemption. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and the prophecies of the new covenant all emphasize the same thing. The promises are to you and to your house. And history is a mainstream by which God drives home the principles of the truth of redemption. There is Hope for your house. The promises are for you and your children. By faith and by faithfulness, claim those promises. Let us pray. How gracious Father, we thank you and praise you that while we were still in trespass and sin, dead and without hope and without God in the world. You sent a Savior to redeem us. You sent your Spirit to bring us new life. We thank you that you're concerned not just for us, but for the generations to come. Give us that happiness of being in a family of all believers. And, O Lord, also, give us as a unified hope that coming day in which the family of faith will be perfected, in which we all together will be the sons and daughters of God, in which Christ, with the wonderful love that he has shown to us, will be as a bridegroom, and we, as a united people, together will be as his bride. O Lord, hasten that day that we may give glory to you, for we ask.